Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 15th, 2013. It's a Thursday, and this is episode 1187 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I've got a great interview lined up for you. Kerry Davis of Dark Angel Medical is the guy that I'm going to be interviewing today, and this interview went fan freaking Fantastic. We did a lot of conversation about critical care, life-saving care, uh, the importance of having a small, compact, take-anywhere-have-everywhere medical kit, the kits he puts together and the training he provides. But the, the, the conversation actually became fascinating as we talked about things like total patient care and psychology of victim care and things like that. One of the best, if not the best, interviews I've ever done uh, in the medical spectrum. Uh, Absolutely great guest. You're going to really enjoy this. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. You know, I just did a whole show on herbalism this week, and I am a huge believer in herbs. And I use herbs not just for medicine. I use herbs in my daily life. I got up this morning, and the first thing I had were two glasses of ice-cold chamomile and mint tea, uh, sweetened with stevia. As I sat out on my deck, and I watched the chickens peck and the geese run around and thought, how lucky I am to have an August this year in Texas where it's not a thousand degrees. It's pretty nice out today. And I'm sure it'll get warmer in the day. But that was a great way to start the day, and herbs were part of it. Uh, but I also believe in using them for medicinal uses as well. And when I don't know what I need, I call Western Botanicals and they tell me, and guess what, they have it. And if I do know what I need and I don't have it here, I go to Western Botanicals and, and they have it. If it's herbal and uh, it's beneficial, and it's legal, you'll find it at Western Botanicals. And if you're not sure what you need, call them up. Real people will take the time to really listen to you and help you figure out what's right for you. Uh, next up today is Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home is something very special to me that I get to work with them as an advertiser uh, today. You see, I started reading them all the way back in 1993 when I first got out of the army, and I, I was kind of broke, so I would like, you know, combine things, to, uh, like go buy a big cup of coffee at uh, at the bookstore and read up about, you know, 20 magazines. So I was out three bucks on the coffee, but I didn't feel like a freeloader. As my life got better, some of those magazines, I got to a point where I felt like, you know, I want to be a subscriber. And it was one of the first magazines. In fact, it was the first magazine I subscribed to uh, after I got out of the military. And I've been a subscriber and reader ever since. And today I get to work with people like Dave Ducky, D Dave Ducky, <laughs> Dave Duck, Duffy and uh, John Silvera, Jackie Clay, Masada Yub. They're just wonderful people. If you want a magazine that actually uh, presents self-sufficiency and self-reliance from a libertarian viewpoint, Backwoods Home is the magazine for you. And if you want practical, hands-on what you can do, Backwoods Home is the magazine for you. Let me mention both Backwoods Home and Western Botanicals have special programs for the Member Support Brigade. Before you order from either of them, get into your back area of your MSB and check it out. Backwoods Home gives new subscribers a couple free books. And Western Botanicals? They give you their premium membership for free. 
It would cost you 50 bucks if you bought it. In other words, it pays for your entire first year of MSB. They're a great supporter. Check out Western Botanicals and Backwoods Home Magazine today. Links, as always, will be in our show notes of our sponsors of the day. also want to remind you guys about that member support brigade. August and July and June are my slow times of year. If you've been on the fence about it and you're thinking about becoming a member, it'd be a good time to do it. I'm just saying. It's not like we can't pay the bills or anything, but I do try to drum up a little business in the summer here and there where I can. And I'm going to do that for you guys today. I'm going to run a sale on the MSB. Uh, the discount code that I'm going to use for this sale is going to be MSB August. Uh, in fact, we're just going to do MSB AUG, A-U-G. So it's going to be MSB AUG, and I'll have that discount code set up by the time you hear this podcast. And what we're going to do is your first year of MSB for $40. So 10 bucks off just to, to spur a little business here toward the end of August. Kids are going back to school. Everything's a little bit slow. MSB AUG, uh, first year for 40 bucks. And, uh, hopefully that discount will, uh, kick a few people off of the fence. Military law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, uh, along with first responders like EMTs and paramedics and firefighters. You guys get a discount for your service if you'll email me before, not after you join. Put service discount in the subject line. And uh, in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, who you are and what you did, and I'll send you that discount code back. That is better. It's a better discount than the sale I'm running right now. MSB AUG uh, is the discount code for uh, for everybody for a sale, and we'll run that sale through Sunday midnight. So you've got all weekend to use it and, and tomorrow, Friday, to use it as well. All right, with that, I do have the uh, housekeeping section of the show wrapped up. And I'm ready to bring my special guest on the air. And with that, man, hey, Carrie, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it, man. Hey, um, we have you on to talk about medical kits and training today. And, uh, of course, your company is called Dark Angel Medical. Before we get into that stuff, though, I mean, like the company and what you guys do and what you recommend and, and what people should be prepared for, what's your background? How did you end up? Uh, you know, having a company like this, and uh, where did you receive your training and all that? Well, uh, started I started uh, doing medical stuff back in 1991 when I came in the military, uh, and I was in the Air Force and had worked uh, at a uh, hospital and an ER, and then I took a special duty duty assignment as a flight medic up at uh, Pope Field uh, there in Fort Bragg now, uh, and was in the only active duty tactical evacuation unit in the Air Force. And so I got to work with a lot of guys from the 82nd, a lot of guys from SF units, a lot of guys from combat control, PJs, all that kind of stuff. They sent me to airborne school at Fort Benning, and um, I really got involved in the in the, the tactical field medicine aspect of things uh, there at that job. And I'd always been a shooter, and so I'd, I loved to I loved to shoot. And so I kind of after I got out of the military, I worked as a civilian paramedic for a while, and then. Um, I started seeing, you know, all these active, all these active shooter situations and all, all these, uh, uh, these law enforcement officers getting put down and things like that and people not having the ability to take care of themselves. And so I started writing some curriculum. This was after I'd already been, a, I'd already been a, a nurse. I went out and got my RN and had been doing critical care and ER stuff for a few years too. So I started working on the curriculum back in, gosh, 2006. And then I didn't finish it and get it copyrighted until about 2008 just because I was working full time and everything. And then that's when I got hooked up with Magpul and started uh, the medical division with them. 
and uh, training with them. And then it just one thing led to another. And the kit was actually born out of the, uh, the curriculum because, you know, I said, Hey, you know, kit needs to be lightweight, compact, durable. And none of the, none of the stuff I had, I had this big Sterilite tub full of nylon that I'm sure most of us have uh-huh. that I'll never use, you know, that, uh, that I'm just keeping just in case. But yeah, we have, uh, multiple, uh, Tupperware tubs of, of medical supplies yeah. uh, that we have as a long-term, uh, insurance program for, for, for medical, uh, needs in the future, not just for ourselves, but, you know, possibly for others. But that doesn't help you when you're, you know, five miles from home or even five blocks from home. Exactly. And that's where my whole curriculum came into play in the development of the kit was, you know, we, 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 uh, to be prepared, I think we need to be more self-sufficient. You know, that's one thing as prepared people, we, we say, Hey, I want to be self-sufficient. I don't have to depend on anyone else for my, my well-being or my family's well-being if I don't have to. And so that's where I started teaching that. And that's my background. So I was a flight medic, paramedic, critical care nurse. And then just started Dark Angel Medical back in August of 2011 and went live in uh, January 2012 selling products. So you, you've worked in a critical care and ER environments. So you've seen the real results of actual lethal force uh, confrontations. And you can probably speak to something I think a lot of people are – I don't know. They have a misappropriated sense of security is the best way I can put it. Most people seem to think unless you're a cop – or unless you're you know, living in gangland, the potential to ever have this type of traumatic injury, especially from gunshot, is, is almost non-existent. I don't believe that's the case. And I also believe that the skills transfer, and it doesn't really matter what put a hole in your chest. It matters that there's a hole in your chest. Absolutely. How do you uh, so, so how does this relate to the person that says, well, I'm not in the tactical field, and do I really need this stuff? There you go. And that, that's a great point. That's what I just taught a class up in North Carolina this past weekend. And some guy said, why do you call it a tactical aid course? You know, we're not learning. You know, I said, well, you know, we're not going to be in here doing hondo rolls and teaching you to become SWAT medics in, you know, <laughs> two days, you know. But there are certain tactical aspects. The same, the same principles from military tactical uh, combat casualty care can be uh, re, uh, you know, transferred over to the civilian sector. You know, if I'm in a, if I'm in a mall or I'm in a grocery store and I'm picking out my thick cut bacon in the back of the store, you know, and I hear gunshots, that's a tactical situation. My tactics depend uh, may determine my survival or my family's survival. What's my what's my first mission priority? And when I was in the military, it's mission accomplishment. Well, as a civilian, my first mission priority at that point is get my wife and kids to safety. Correct. So, you know, that's so that it kind of it kind of transfers back and forth and you can utilize a lot of the same things, same principles uh, for the military standpoint and, to, and transfer them for civilian use. Uh, and it's just like you said, man, it's just a matter of, hey, well, you, there may be a chance where you'll use this stuff and learning how to recognize and treat the injuries doesn't matter who, what caused it. But knowing how to treat it, knowing how to recognize it, what is it? How do I treat it? And that'll, that'll turn into more self-sufficient person. I think the tactical aspect is important too for the during treatment part beyond just the skill set of what do I do. And, and what I mean by that is like I went through a course in the Army called Combat Lifesavers. Yep. And we were taught that, well, you do want to save this guy, but you also don't want to get your ass shot while you're doing it. Exactly. So it, you have to not get tunnel vision on the care aspect and think tactically about, well, maybe I, even though I'm not supposed to move this person, I need to so they don't get hit again and I don't get killed and things like that. And it was very much a patch them and, 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 and push them course. It was get them, keep them alive long enough for somebody that knows more than you, um, which is very relevant to the civilian world. And it doesn't matter to me that you get tunnel vision and, and, and an enemy soldier snipes you 
or you get tunnel vision and an 18-wheeler runs over you when you've stopped on the side of the road. And the way to think about that, to me, is also very germane to the subject with thinking tactically. Tactically is not always about engaging an enemy. Tactical is about assessing a situation and addressing the situation as best as you as you possibly can, given what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely, man. You, you you hit the nail right on the head with that, and that's what I let people know that it's it's all about being, you know, it's all about self preservation. And you know, I, I teach them the difference between cover and concealment, and you know, and hey, this is your this is your principles right here. Whatever the X may be, the X may be the person may be a motorcyclist that's laying out in the middle of the road. Well, that's the X. You want to get them off that X, whether you're getting, and if you're getting shot at, obviously you want to get off that X, you know, your point of contact, whatever the case may be, because, you know, we're far more likely to use these, this medical training, this medical, medical kit in a, in a non-shooting situation, far more likely to use it in that type of situation than we will a shooting situation, but the same principles apply. Yeah. Um, Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense was on the show. And uh, he had, he was getting ready to do a, sh- uh, a class that was going to be focusing a hell of a lot more on the medical aspects than the shooting aspects of things. Uh, a week after that show, he did the class. He had a whole bunch of students come in. And then a week later, I got an email from him from a student that had just been to that class. And they had learned to apply an Israeli battle dressing. And he had suggested that people carry them with them. And um, a week after this, this, this gal had taken this class... They were at a church function. Kid ran into a garbage dumpster and busted his head open. Yep. Uh, and she, she, you know, she said, "I knew exactly what to do." And I, he probably wouldn't have died or anything, but you know, head injuries you can bleed a lot really, really fast. Absolutely. And 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 that's a perfect example of what you're saying. I mean, that skill transfers to a gushing, bloody wound, regardless of how it occurred. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the same principles apply, you know, stop the bleeding, start the breathing. And, you know, that's, that's something, that I used to, <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, we had to say, you know, all bleeding will stop eventually, whether you do anything or not. Yeah. But, I mean, I had a guy that was a 19 year firefighter uh, in Texas had taken one of my classes. I'm an, you know, I'm an instructor at six hour Academy as well and had taken one of my classes and, um, and, you know, he never had to use a tourniquet because, you know, obviously tourniquets are bad. They're going to, you're going to lose that limb. Even though, you know, that's the old, the old stigma associated with it, even though new, new data shows that that's far from the case. Uh, and he said, uh, there was a boating accident and they responded to it and the gentleman had had both legs ripped open by the props. It was two props and had mm-hmm. serious arterial bleeding and he applied two tourniquets, one to each thigh. And when he got in the hospital, the doc was like, who put these on? And he's like, I did. You know, he thought he was going to get his butt chewed. And the doc was like, you, you probably saved this dude's life. Oh, absolutely. And the dude walked out six weeks later, man, on both yeah. legs. Yeah, I mean, if this is something that's always frustrated me with that. Yeah, you can do permanent damage to a limb with a tourniquet, and maybe it shouldn't go all the time. It's funny because I was just about to ask you about tourniquets. So we've we've made that turn here without having to <laughs> having to do it. But um Segway. <laughs> so um but you then you'll hear about somebody that had their arm lopped off and somebody found it and threw it in an ice cooler and took it to the hospital and they reattached it and it works. You know, maybe it's got some problems, but it functions. And if that's the case, then, you know, the, the concept that as soon as you put a tourniquet on, you might as well cut an arm off, it, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. No, and, and here's some hard data, man. They did a tourniquet study in Iraq between 2008 and 2009, and almost 500 tourniquets were applied. And of those tourniquets that they applied, not a single limb was lost due to tourniquet application. They might have lost the limb, but it wasn't because of the tourniquet, because maybe the limb was already... Exactly. It was already unsalvageable. Um, but you know, they, and they estimate, I was just reading in journal special operations magazine yesterday that, um, 
the uh, the medical magazine, the quarterly, that they estimate up to two thousand soldiers have had have had their lives saved uh, due to tourniquet use. So mm. it, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, blood belongs in the body, man. It doesn't belong <laughs> around. You know? I mean, it, it, that's a simple fact, you know. And that's what I think that's what they've seen in the last twelve years of, of sustained combat operations is, you know, blood belongs in the body, and the, the quicker you get that blood in the body, you're going to increase chances of survival if you. Or in stage one, if you're only in stage one shock and you get that tourniquet in place, that's less than 750 milliliters of blood loss. Uh, you, your chance of survival is about 92%. Wow. If, if you put the tourniquet on after they're in stage two, that's when they've lost greater than a liter of blood, 750 to a liter. Uh, their chances of survival decrease exponentially to about 40% because you have all the systemic inflammatory response syndromes. You have your, your, you know, your internal organs are not getting perfused. And so they start, they start getting fragged, your liver and your kidneys. And you can, you may survive the insult, but you'll be dead 14 days later because of multi-system organ failure. Yeah, and I think that's something a lot of people don't realize, that that type of thing happens, that we live in a world where TV has convinced us that if you get the person to the hospital before they die and they don't die on the, the ER table, that they're going to live. And that's just not how the real world works. Absolutely, brother. I've seen it, man. I mean, from a, from a you know paramedic standpoint, you know, I get a I get a gunshot victim into the ER, you know, really fast and get them get them stabilized, get them an ER, and then like you know, a week later, I'd say, hey, how'd that person do? And they're like, oh, they you know they just died. Hmm. You know? And it's it is it's heartbreaking, but that's that's the reality of it. So, and your kits are designed to keep people from dying if possible. I, I always say that as preppers, we have to have a, a very optimistic yet fatalistic outlook. And I, you know, I often say things like, you know, tomorrow I could get hit by a gravel truck. If I do, I'm dead. There's nothing <laughs> I can do. But right. we want to increase the odds of survival where, where and wherever we can. Now, obviously, from the conversation we just had, I'm going to assume your kits include a tourniquet. Uh, but what else is in your med kits and, and why, why were they chosen? Because, Clearly, as we've already discussed, it can't have everything, because if, if it did, it would be that giant Tupperware set of bins that I have, and it's not. So what, what is included in these small kits that you, you, you produce? Okay, all right. The Direct Action Response Kit, or the DARK, as a, a buddy and I came up with the name one night up in New Hampshire um, before I went live. It, it, contain, it does contain a tourniquet, because what we try to do is use the same principles that apply to tactical combat casualty care. What are the biggest causes of death? First one is 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 a life-threatening hemorrhage. Boom! There's your tourniquet right there. Then we have to address uh, uh, you know the tension pneumothorax. Well, I don't put a needle in the kit just because of liability reasons, and that's considered an advanced practice skill, and you can get some serious doo-doo if you do that. Um, but I put halo seals in there, the occlusive dressing, because there's two of those. They'll stick to a snotty Sasquatch, man. Those things will stick to anything, and uh, they they will occlude an entry or an exit wound. And what that does, it delays the onset once it's in place, delays the onset of a tension pneumo. They're still going to get one, but they're going to need a chest tube and surgery. And so then we, then we look at the air, uh, at the airway injuries. Uh, the airway injuries account for uh, roughly about six to seven percent of combat deaths. So we put a nasal airway in there as well. So they can, they can utilize that if they need to. And then we put a, a pressure dressing for, uh, other, you know, non-life threatening bleeds, uh, hemostatic gauze, a quick clock combat gauze, um, uh, the, the civilian version in our civilian kits and the mil-spec version in our military spec kits has the x-ray visible strip. That's the only difference in the two. And then we put 12 more feet of standard gauze and a pair of nitrile gloves. And we just basically, man, it, it's we don't want to make it too overcomplicated and overthink it because you're going to fall to your lowest level of training. And if you have, you know, bigger's not always better. If you have too much stuff in the kit, it's going to be a yard sale. 
you're going to start throwing crap everywhere looking for <laughs> the one thing that's right in front of you. So and that's the reason we, you know, had to we trademark saying simplicity under stress because that's that's what we try to make it is where it's simple. Well, I found it in oversimplification. I uh, I did see some some uh, brilliance in the the concept. Uh, my buddy Dave Canterbury does a lot of outdoor training. Uh, when he was asked about his medical kit, he said it's duct tape and a, and a cotton cloth. And if you need more than that, you require a helicopter. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's a little bit of an oversimplification. And I don't think he really means that. Right. But it was kind of the let's cut to the chase and the majority of injuries that you experience actually can be addressed with something that simplistic. And if you complicate it too much, you end up sitting there trying to figure out, well, what do I use? Absolutely, man. You put, you make it too busy and then you vapor lock when you see all the contents and you're trying to make that decision. Whereas if it's just everything's purpose driven, you know, there it is. That's what I need to use for this. I need to use A for this one and B for this one. And that's, and I, I chose the components based on my personal experience with them and boots on the ground experience with them, uh, buddies of mine who were deployed overseas, uh, and plus some of my latest uh, classes that I had gone to, you know, to keep myself sharp on everything. And so I, everything that's in the kit is, has been essentially combat proven. Now, the, the stuff that's in there, it looks like a lot of it is what you see in a typical thing that we call in the industry a blowout kit. Yep. Uh, the things that are most likely to kill you and a few additional things added to maybe a base bones kit. Um, but something that's not there that's in a lot of kits is a decompression needle. Correct. Why did you choose not to include that in your kit? Well, like I was saying, the, big, the first reason is liability. Uh, even in the military, the only, the only combat lifesaver guys that can use that now are the combat lifesaver dash first responder. Mm. The only dudes that can use that other than dedicated 68 whiskeys, 68 Zulus, whatever the medics. Uh, and that's not in a civilian scope of practice. If you're an MD, sure, you can use one, uh, because you are your own medical control. If it's in your, you know, that's in your scope of practice. As an RN, even as a paramedic, unless I'm acting under direct supervision, RNs won't even do it. That's not even an RN scope of practice. If I'm a paramedic, I have to be acting under direct medical supervision to use that needle. Um, and otherwise, I'm assaulting someone with a deadly weapon. I'm practicing medicine without a license. And that's not something I think anybody should have the uh, – that's one reason is a liability. They shouldn't have to accept that responsibility or that liability. The second reason is a lot of the catheters, the 14-gauge catheters, tend to get the, – the, the walls of the catheter will tend to get kinked up. You know, the, the thoracic cavity is very vascular, and when you get injured, that insult's going to bleed a lot internally. And so that catheter will get kinked off, and they may need more than one dart. They, there was a case of a pararescue guy got hit in Afghanistan, and he decompressed himself 14 times before he got back to the, 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 the cache, the, the, the forward surgical hospital. So, you know, it's, you need, one, it's liability. Two, you may need more than one. Three, it's uh, definitely an advanced practice. And I tell guys, look, if, the, if it's something you're comfortable doing or that you have the, the capability and the scope to do, you can always buy one and throw it in the molly webbing on the outside of the pack. Or you can actually stick it inside the kit. There's more than enough room inside that little pouch to throw a couple of decompression needles in there. But that's... I'm just not assisting you taking liability that I don't want to take into my own company. That's that's pretty much what you're saying. Absolutely. Well, and it's an advanced practice skill, man. I mean, can people buy them? Yeah, but they have to certify that they are they're trained to use it and that they have the the medical direction to use it. Yeah, and it's and you can do and if you don't know how to use it properly, you, you don't know how the symptoms and signs of of attention hemothorax. You can cause more harm than good. You can nick a what if you did it too high and you nicked a subclavian artery, or if you did it too low and you nick one of the intermammary arteries. You know, I mean. Then you're talking, what if they don't have a tension pneumo? 
They're just having, yeah. they, got, they got broken ribs. Well, guess what? They got a tension pneumo now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think that that particular tool, if you want to have it and you're not an MD or, or at least combat trained the way some of the uh, military specialists you're talking about are, the way to do that would be to learn as much as you can about it. And that big Rubbermaid Tupperware bin that we're talking about, it goes in there. And that is for the day that we're into a, a situation where it's not emergency medicine or tactical medicine, it's collapse medicine. Absolutely. And, and there's yes. a day we might go there. And at that point, then a lot of things that you would never do, ever do, in a normal situation become, you either do that or someone dies. And it's the only chance you got. And if right. I can increase your odds of survival by 10%, and in that situation, I'll do it. But it's going to have to be that situation before I would take such a low return on uh, on risk. Absolutely. No, that, and that, that bring, you bring up a very valid point on that. Yeah, if it was, you know, the end of the world as we know it, at that point, kind of all the societal rules and uh, I, don't, I don't think we – I think litigation would be the last thing on our mind at that point <laughs> in time, you know. Yeah. No, that's that, – but yeah. And it's, it's one of my frequently asked questions, and I even put it on our website under the facts section. So if people want to check it out, you know, if they have any other questions, they can contact me. But there's lots of sources out there for them. But, you know, I've done several custom kits for the military strictly with with a needle, but they don't have to worry about the same, you know, the same. Uh, they're not bound to the same uh, scope of practice as we are here in civilian sector. You know, that said, you uh, you mentioned that there's the one difference between the mil-spec kit and the civilian kit, and it was the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the strip for the uh, x-ray strip? Yes. If I don't ask you, I'm going to get a thousand questions, so <laughs> what's the point of that? The point of the x-ray visible strip in the combat gauze is because of the number of handoffs, what we call patient a patient handoff, that usually occurs from the point of injury to the time that the casualty arrives at a forward surgical unit. Uh, and that, you know, that little packet of quick clot, uh, packet that it comes in could get lost, could get blown off in a prop wash or something like that. They may never even put it on there. They may have packed a wound. And it's basically because there could be, you know, four, five, six, seven handoffs before this guy ever reaches his final, uh, you know, destination for, to get the advanced care that he needs. And that way, when they do a, an x-ray, oh, okay, so he's got 12 feet of gauze stuffed inside his upper thigh, you know. Okay because there's so much blood all over the place, we didn't recognize it, because that stuff can really blend in pretty well with tissue once it's saturated with blood. Yeah, I know that Like when, when a surgeon does surgery, they inventory every sponge, every gauze, everything, because it's not it's not like it's never happened that somebody's left something behind inside somebody. Absolutely. you know, And in a civilian sector, usually from the point of injury to the ER to the OR, that's it. You know, there's, there's you know, EMS to the ER, there's one report. And then the ER up to the OR, there's another report. So that's usually pretty easy. And that's the reason the civilian version, uh, they're what we call Combat Gauls LE, does not have the strip in it. Um, when you look at this, I, I look at the type of uh, product that you have a lot like I look at a gun. Uh, I talk about it all the time where, you know, if you want to be an effective gun owner, you have to have three things, and, and there's other things that would be nice to have, but there's three things if you don't have, it won't happen. And, and one is a gun. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you, you've got a problem. Two is, you know, ammunition, both for training and for use. And if you have a gun with no bullets, well, 
you can throw the gun at the guy and hopefully he won't <laughs> pick it up and load it with some of his bullets and kill you, but you need to have ammo to go with the gun or you have a really expensive club. <laughs> the, the, the third and most overlooked is uh, training as an operator because you've said it here already. You'll default to your basically your lowest level, not your highest level. And that training me- makes you in a situation where that occurs that you have the greatest chance to, to be victorious, to survive, and to execute as you need to to survive that situation. When I look at medical supplies like this, you know, I see the same thing. The supplies are great, but the training is, is probably more important than the supplies in many instances. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it, it's the training, I think, is important. And, and I say the same thing you just said, Jack. I talk about the parallels between firearms uh, and medicine, you know, or emergency medicine. It's a perishable skill. And, and you know, you got to stay fresh on it. And that's the reason we offered to do the training, because I don't just train people to use my kit. I train them to use components. And, you know, and if you know how to utilize a component and what you use it for, then if I don't have a nice kit or if I don't, if somebody else doesn't have a kit, what can I utilize in my environment? How can I exploit my environment to find what I need that will be an acceptable substitute for that, that product that's available commercially, but I don't have on hand. Uh, and I think that being a problem solver and critical, critical skills, it's kind of like a medical detective. You know, I have to tell people, you ask three questions. What is it? How do I recognize it? How do I treat it? If you can answer those three questions pretty effectively, you can, you can take care of a lot of the stuff that would otherwise, uh, you know, confound most people. And so uh, the medical training, absolutely. And I tell people, if you get a kit, you know, utilize some of the, get some of the components separately uh, and learn how to learn how to use that, that uh, emergency bandage, that Israeli bandage, learn how to get you another tourniquet to practice with, you know, learn how to put that tourniquet on upside down, sitting in your car. Like I say, you got carjacked or something like that. Can you get that thing on your thigh with your seatbelt still on and you're squirting blood all over the place? You know, I mean, it's just that's that kind of stuff is uh, is key is, you know, you got to train, you got to stay fresh and you got to we, we practice shooting in, in unorthodox positions. We need to practice with our med kit in the same type of situations, because I think it's kind of arrogant if we think we're going to get in a gunfight and not get impacted. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like if you get in a fist fight, you're going to get punched. If you get in a knife fight, you're going to get cut. If you get in a gunfight, you may as well think, hey, I may end up getting shot. And just because you win the gunfight, you know, you, you the real fight may just be starting once that gun smoke clears. And there have been plenty of firefights where, in the end, both sides end up dead. Absolutely. happens happens daily, man. You know, um, we just had a police officer in Georgia uh, use our kit on one of his brother officers that had gotten impacted in gunfight. Um, the officer got hit, and he ended up, the, the fellow officer that responded returned fire. And uh, neutralized the the suspect and used our kit to save the guy's life. So, mm. hey, you know it's a it's an everyday occurrence, man. Could you give people kind of an overview of taking a class with you? Some of the bullet points, main things that get covered, how long it lasts, what the cost is, and and how they could find out more about your classes. Because like, I've noticed you don't. It's not like if you want to go to this guy's class, you got to go to this place. You do them quite quite a, quite a number of places geographically as well. Yeah, we we. Uh, we do travel. We, we basically are dependent on someone willing to host us. And by that, I mean, you know, someone says, hey, I want to put on a class for you. We send them a host agreement. They look at everything, get the venue set up, and we start advertising for it to get it filled. Uh, the, the class uh, is it, cover, it's, uh, it encompasses a two-day period, 16 hours. And essentially, you go from the basic building blocks of 
uh, anatomy and physiology, um, to understand the, the workings of the human body and the systems that we're talking about that get impacted, you know, the vascular system, the respiratory system, things like that. And then uh, we get into uh, the components of the kit and what those kit, what those components are utilized for. And then we go into more other, we go into, we branch out in several types of injuries, not just gunshot wounds, because, you know, the, like I said, we're in everyday life every day, not on a square range. And, you know, environmental injuries like heat exhaustion, um, and uh, hy- you know, hypothermia, things like that, burns, um, carbon monoxide poisoning, near drowning, animal bites, insect bites, how to how to assist someone with an epipen, you know, things that things that are, are are relevant to everyday life, not just not just gunshot wounds. And uh, it's it's like drinking from a fire hose for a couple of days, man. And you know, you do a we do a hands-on session at the end of the second day. Uh, and, and run people through tourniquet drills and they learn how to pack wounds. They learn how to use the emergency dressings. They need to learn how to use other dressings. They learn, they learn how to use nasal airways, basic splinting procedures, um, things like that. And I think it's stuff that's pertinent for, for anyone and everyone to be a little more self-sufficient and be what I say more of an asset to society rather than a liability. You know, and not to put down things like, you know, Red Cross first aid training and things like that, but, this type of a, a training session to me is far more advanced and far more applicable to situations where, you know, you really need to be able to do this. And, and what I mean by this, people get hurt every day. Yes. And it's great that you know how to put on a bandage or a band-aid or whatever. But let's, let's be honest. The majority of injuries sustained by people on an everyday basis will get better if you do nothing. Exactly. This is training for the times when that's not the case, correct? That absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's ditch medicine, man. You know, and it's it's essentially, uh, you know, direct pressure. Let's be honest. Direct pressure will take care of 90 percent of the bleeds we see out there. You know, that's why I tell people, look, man, if it can be solved with direct pressure and your eight year old cuts her finger or something, don't freak her out. And, you know, got to put a tourniquet on there. You know, <laughs> you're going to that kid's going to dump a quick clot or whatever. Yeah, exactly. in it, you know? Yeah, kid's going to need therapy, man. You know, so you yeah, know, most, most of these things can be solved with direct pressure. And that's and that's what we kind of get through to people. And the, and the course it runs four fifty a person. That's for two days. That includes a manual. That includes a, a kit that retails for about one hundred sixty bucks. So all said, when it's all said and done, it's a pretty reasonable course, and it, it gives people so much more. And I'm not knocking on the American Red Cross. It is what it is. But uh, and I still recommend people get CPR trained. And sure. if, if they get the basic first aid, um, then they can they could use our course as kind of they could use that course as a springboard into ours and yeah. kind of build on what they've already learned. So, I say get the CPR training because if you ever have, I don't care if you know how to do it already, if you ever have to do it to save somebody's life and you do it to the person with the wrong litigious family, it covers your ass. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a big proponent of that, man. And I let these guys know in class, if you have not gotten CPR trained, get it. Uh, and if, this, if you have kids, there's no excuse. You got to have it. You know, I mean, that's, that's just, that's just one thing. My wife used it. She was a paramedic too. And she used it on our daughter. She's a, you know, the foreign body obstructed airway. Our daughter got, when she was about 18 months old, got choked. And, uh, you know, if she wouldn't have known what to do, my daughter might not be here today, you know, eight yeah. years later. Yeah. I mean, that kind of thing happens all the time. I know I don't remember it. I was too little, but I know when I was little, I got a piece of candy in my throat. And my grandfather's solution was to hold me up by my feet and hit me in the back and I guess it worked because <laughs> I'm still here but you know sometimes that's not possible you generally can't do that with an adult 
Um, you mentioned something though that I didn't realize. So your your class at four fifty sounds like a damn fair value to me, but I didn't realize. So every student that attends that class leaves with leaves with one of your kits as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they leave with a handbook. They can take home with them. It's got uh, a PowerPoint presentation in there, uh, and it leaves room for them to write notes. So they have they have the ability to take the information with them and and still you know reread it and maybe get some new information, kind of like watching a movie a second time. Um, and also, yeah, the kit. That's I say, hey, you know, that's the least I can do for for that. So that's the reason I think it's a pretty good value um, for them for the money. So. And about how many how many classes do you are you doing a year right now, or how many do you have set before the end of uh, of the year? And maybe if you can, off the top of your head, throw out some locations. You know, you're going to be out in the next few months for people. Oh goodness, yeah, man, we've got a. Uh, uh, I'm going up to uh, we we've, we've done probably about. 15, 16 classes this year, and I've got about, whew, I mean, i got about six, maybe, seven more to go. <laughs> so, maybe I can help you here. Let's see. I'm on your site right now. Uh, I, I even took off some of the classes. I even erased some of the ones from earlier this really? year. Yeah, we, we've done we've done quite a few. And I'm, head, I'm about to head up to, uh, I'm heading up to, where am I going? Scottsdale. Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, I'm, before that, I'm going to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan on the 14th and 15th of uh, September. Uh, then I head to Scottsdale, Michigan on the 5th and 6th uh, of September, uh, or of October, I'm sorry. Then I head to uh, up to uh, down to Tucson, Arizona on the 26th and 27th. And then I've got some other little side trips in between there. I, like I said, I work for SIG, so I have classes with SIG as well. And we Chantilly, do a Chantilly, Virginia. You've got in November. That's right, Chantilly, Virginia, in November. That one's completely full. We're maxed out in that one, and so I'm already booking into 2014. Uh, I'll say, let me tell people what you got in 2014 here. Then I've got. Uh, I'm trying to put them in order because you got them alphabetically instead of order by date. Uh, we've got Waverly, Tennessee, on 25 and 26 January. Uh, Amarillo, Texas, on 8 and 9 February. And North Lima, Ohio, on 22 and 23 March. So yeah, you're getting around. Yeah, we're, we're kind of bouncing all over the place, and, and and so far we've we've I think I've only had to cancel one class uh, due to lack of participation, and that that kind of that's discon- disconcerting, and not not from a financial standpoint, that's not a big deal. You know, I, I'm not gonna I don't worry about that. I just want to get the information out to people, and I think people, you know, they're always like, well, medical training is not really that cool. You know, and I'm like, well, neither's bleeding to death. <laughs> I think you need a T-shirt that says that. I like something like, if you don't think medical training is cool, try bleeding to death. Yeah, see how <laughs> you, see how cool you feel when you bleed out, you know, or something. You'll feel cool. Yeah, you'll feel very cold because you'll be, <laughs> you know, and, and that's and that's just it. I, I think there's been a big stigma against medical training too. People think it's dry. They think it's they think it's uninteresting, and and I try to keep it fun and engaging and. And, you know, and get, keep people laughing. You know, I've been I've been an adult educator for my entire adult life, so I I, I like to learn. You know, I want to know why, and I don't want to be talked at. I want to be talked to. You know, so um, yeah, man, we got a lot of classes coming up. Also, I'm doing a class in Texas. I or I think I think if it still goes, 21, 22 September in the Dallas, Texas area with uh, M3 Strategies. Uh, Steve Pinot, he's a, a a young man that's a uh, making a pretty good name for himself as an instructor. And uh, we're doing like a one-day medical class, one-day class on the range. And if people want to check out, if they are interested in live fire components to the shooting course or to the medical course, uh, I teach a class through Six Hour Academy called Bullets and Bandages. 
and uh, they can go on the Six Hour Academy website and click on Specialty Courses, and we're right up under there, uh, under the under the Specialty Courses. And so it's a three day class. It's two days in the classroom and one day on the range, kind of doing some live fire stress inoculation, getting people's you know getting people's heart pumping because they may be really great shooters, but you throw one more facet at them, you know, one more task. Yeah, and and it's a soup sandwich, man. And they're like, whoa, this is this is real life. Yeah, it's interesting what happens when you introduce an element. Um, yes. I did a lot of training with uh, the guys that are former Russian Special Forces guys because I had one as a client for a number of years. And we do a lot of training with airsoft because you're actually shooting at each other. And, and that changes things right away, um, except that you know that it just stings. You're not going to die. So what they'll do is they'll have like one of the instructors standing there while you get two people in a force-on-force engagement, and he starts whipping tennis balls at your freaking head. <laughs> um, now, that's not going to kill you either, but it really freaking hurts. And you got a six foot two, 210-pound Russian throwing fastballs at you. And it's amazing how the introduction of any additional element causes a lot of things that you thought you've trained to the point now where they're completely reflexive. And, you're, and, and, and actually, you, if you subject yourself to it enough, you you do get there, but you think you're there, and then you introduce that element, and, and you're really not. Absolutely, man. You don't know what you don't know until you find out that you don't know. You know, yeah. and it's, <laughs> it's totally. And the way I look at it, Jack, is it's it's so much better. I believe to learn that in the training environment, dude. Use that use that training time. Learn that in the training environment versus the time you don't want to learn that is when it's out on out in the field. You know, or or in a societal collapse. Just how little you don't know, and you, then you watch somebody you care about or you love uh, die, you know. And and the thing Absolutely. is, a two day course could have made you so much more self self sufficient. I get letters all the time, man, from folks, and it makes me feel so good because I know I'm I'm still doing some good for folks. You know, I get a, I got a letter from a kid that took him a class in Michigan. He said, "Hey, one of my buddies got hurt at work, and uh, he was hurt pretty severely." And I was able to stay calm and use the training and just went through the little algorithm that you told me that you taught us in class. And I was able to help him out and stabilize him until EMS got there. So that's so rewarding for me because at the end of the day, you know, like I, I, I tell everybody, it ain't about the money, man. I like to eat. Don't get me wrong. I like to feed my kids. But, sure. at, the end, but at the end of the day, it's all about getting the information out and, and helping people. Also, being able to do something you love and and earn a living at the same time is everybody's dream. It's good to see you, you know, stepping into that direction with this. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out is we do have a lot of people that listen in this audience that are gun shop owners and firearms trainers and things like that. If someone like that wanted to carry your kits, is there a way they could get in touch with you about doing that? I mean, do you have any kind of a wholesale program for people that would be buying them by the case or something like that? Yeah, absolutely, man. We do a, we do a, we do have a dealer program and it's, uh, it's a tiered, it's a tiered level basically you know the more volume they buy the the more profit you know the better their points point spread will be as far as the margin goes uh so you know from like you know zero to ten eleven to twenty five twenty six to fifty things like that uh and so we do have several pretty big dealers you know six hour academy's pro shop is uh one of our beer dealers f3 tactical out in virginia is a big dealer for us uh rainier arms is a big dealer for us and we got several other smaller dealers but uh you know, it's uh, absolutely. If someone wants to get in, con- in touch with us, just shoot us an in- uh, email at w. At, uh, sorry, info at darkangelmedical dot com and ask us about our dealer program, and we'll send some dealer info to them. Very, very cool. And you mentioned people hosting an event. So, h- how does that work? 
same same way. They they you can check out all the hosting, all pretty much all this. I try to make our training page on our website pretty comprehensive, so it's got all the hosting requirements uh, for the most part. Uh, there's a couple of things that are in the hosting agreement that I don't post on there, and then uh, you know payment policy, registration, cancellation, things like that. And then uh, all they have to do is, just, if they're interested in getting a class set up in their area, I just need a facility with AV equipment uh, and enough tables and chairs for up to 20 people. I typically do about 20 people. The one in Virginia is going to be a, a, a little bit bigger. It's going to be about 35 people. But um, I typically don't do more than 20 people at a time uh, just because some people don't, and they have trouble getting that type of, that size facility. And all they do is just let me know, and we'll send them the, the hosting agreement, and they send it back, and we work out a date, get dates on the books, and start start pushing the class. Excellent. I, I had my pen crap to bed, so I almost forgot about bringing this up. Uh, so I'm backtracking a little bit here because I finally remembered it. I've been sitting here going, what was that thing? Uh, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about the victim psychology a bit. When you were talking about how you're going through an algorithm in your mind, you know what to do to stabilize the victim. And all, a lot of times that victim is conscious. How important is it to that victim's psychology that they have that will to live, that fight to live, and, re- and a reduction in potential to go into excessive shock that's psychological to feel like someone there knows what the hell to do to help them? You bring up, man, you bring up, you bring up some good points, man. Uh, and cause I cover, and it, it's cool because it's a segue into my, into my class because I actually teach that during one of the phases of, uh, of the assessment is whenever you're, whenever you're going up to them and you're approaching them initially, you know, talk to them, even if they don't appear conscious, you know, reassure them because they can, they can hear you, you know, you, and the constant reassurance, uh, you know, and talking to them and, and, uh, and, and comforting them, just putting the hands, putting the hands on them. That's going to increase or decrease their stress level. Obviously, they're already stressed out enough as it is because they're somewhat incapacitated. And, you know, if you come up to them and go, oh, man, this dude's fragged, you know, and they hear you say that. Oh, oh man. Yeah. You know, you know, don't. That's dear God, man. That's the last thing anybody wants to hear. So, um, you know, and I had because I had a nursing school instructor that got in a really bad car accident. And the last thing she heard before she got innovated was, man, I don't know if she's going to make it or not. You know, and, and I mean, how how demoralizing is that? You know, you got to give them that will to live, and and that's you know that's their mission at that point. That's their that's their primary mission is to stay alive, and that's what you you've got to instill in them that, like you said, that will to live. And and I think you decrease their stress a lot by hey, you know what, buddy, you're gonna be okay. I got this. Stay with me. Stay in yeah. the fight. You know, keep talking to them, reassuring them. Reassurance means a lot to a lot of people. And I, I think society has gotten too much of the belief that the human being lives or dies based on only injury and treatment. So that we've tried to take out of our minds the concept of will to live being part of it. I know that's bullshit. I, I absolutely know it. I know it from something totally different. As I got into the survival uh, genre, one of the things I did was reach out to professionals. And I interviewed a lot of professionals about the psychology of survival. And I thought that, like, well, what would be a group of people that know about survival that would be relatively easily accessible and probably would take my call and talk to me? And the the group I decided to talk to were oncologists. And I talked to about a good dozen, you know, oncologists, for those who don't know the word, doctors that specialize in cancer treatment. And everyone told me that if they had two patients 
that took the same treatment for the same cancer with the same prognosis, the pain in the ass patient was almost always the one that beat the odds. The one that was like, why am I doing this? What's my other options? What should I be taking along with this? How do I support my immune? That would just never shut up and would just constantly question everything. It was like, they're a pain in the ass, but they live. And when I'd ask them, you know, why do you think that is? They would say, because they know what they do matters. And that's a clear-cut case of somebody fight. And that doesn't mean that when somebody dies, they just didn't have a strong enough will. There's, again, gravel truck, road spot, done. (laughs) But there is that point where it could go either way, and that person's psychology, both physiologically, because, yeah, they, they 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 get afraid and they go into greater shock and they're more susceptible, and just a direct, flat out will to survive has a huge impact on whether or not they go one way or the other when they're on that fulcrum and they the, the thing could tilt either way. Now you're you're absolutely correct, Jack, and that that whole that brings back the whole thing. One of the first things I cover in class is the warrior mindset. You know, and I say, hey, you don't have to be in the military to have a warrior mindset. You know, every day when I get up, I look in the mirror and go, not me, not my family, not today. And that's what these these cancer patients and I've seen that happen. The will to live, the human mind is a very very powerful thing. If people give up. You know, if people give up, they're done. You know, I saw it after my, I saw it firsthand after my mom passed. Uh, you know, my dad didn't know how to boil water, man. You know, so he, he, I mean, my mom had spoiled him for almost 50 years and my dad held on for a little while, but then he just gave up and he was, I saw him and he said, he said, son, I'm, I'm just ready to go home. Yeah. And when he told me that, I told my two brothers, I said, guys, I said, dad's going to be gone in a month. And they said, well, how do you know that? He's in, he's in, his health is fine. I said, he's given up. He's given up that will to live, and he died less than three less than three weeks later in his sleep. No, you know that's it. Yeah, and you do see it with people at end of life where they are holding on for something, to maybe yep. to see somebody, to make one last statement, to yep. to do something. And I, I, I've seen twice in my life people that I cared about in that state where you know they could die in two days, they could die in two minutes, accomplish something. They like uh, in one instance, a relative was coming. And they held on till that relative got there, and they just let go and died. And and that tells you that there is something in the human body that has the ability to both hold on or release. And if you're a hundred and two and you have six kinds of cancer and you've had three heart attacks, it's 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 probably time to go ahead and accept that you're mortal and and, and let go. Um, but if you're forty five and have life ahead of you, I'd sure hope there's someone there. You know, if I'm severely injured in risk of death, to to help me cross that bridge and make make the choice, to, let's stick around for a while. Absolutely, man. That's where that reassurance comes in. But you know, the victim's got to have that right mindset. But it can be up to the responder or a rescuer, whatever you want to call them, to help to help uh, help further that along a little bit. You know, give them that reassurance, give them that encouragement, be a, be their cheerleader. You know, yeah. Take care you know of. what's you know what's so badass about this is I've I've been an, an advocate of alternative medicine my entire life basically because I've seen the results of ignoring treating the patient rather than treating the symptom. And I've always said, with an exception, and that is, if I have a yield sign in my spleen, please don't rub comfrey on it. Take me to a surgeon as fast as possible to get it out of my spleen and try to fix me. But yet, you know what we're discovering today, and even though I've known everything I'm saying to you, it's kind of put it back together for me, that even in this critical care situation where it's survival medicine, you still have to treat the entire patient. 
Absolutely. You, you okay. still have to have a holistic approach Absolutely. to have the greatest chance of recovery and success. You got to treat the whole person, not just the injury. Uh, and that, you're, you're exactly correct, man. I was going to say that holistic approach is huge. It's like I got Bell's palsy last year. Uh, and Bell's palsy is a, an attack on your cranial nerves that innervate the, the eyelids and the forehead and the mouth and everything like that. The right side of my face looked like it had a huge shot of Botox shot into it. And it was, uh, you know, I was completely paralyzed on the right side of my face. Uh, but holistic medicine, you know, I did, I did not only conventional Western medicine, I did a lot of Eastern medicine, you know, herbs and acupuncture, massage therapy, chiropractic, cold laser therapy, things like that to help regenerate those nerves. And within three months, I was fully recovered, which is almost unheard of. Hmm. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for it. But, you know, and I, and I went through, I did a lot of meditation and things to de-stress because that was when I left the hospital and went with and did Dark Angel full time. And so I was very stressed out, yeah. Uh, you know, to say the least. You know, I was kind of concerned yeah. about if we were going to eat that month. You know, that type of thing. And so, it, but you know, the whole person, the whole being, is definitely something that we need to start taking into account. And 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 also the you know the comfort doesn't end just at the just after the injury's been been incurred. What if it was a very traumatic situation? And you do have to be concerned about things like PTSD. Uh, you know, and and having them not keep things inside and talk to them. So there can still be harm done uh, mentally, even though the physical injuries may not be that great or may not, they, and they may not manifest until later on when the person finally comes to terms with it and they realize how close to death they came. Well, you know, that's huge too, because that that's making me think of is like, if, uh, if I said to you, you're completely freaking worthless, Carrie, you'd right. probably be like, I don't give a damn. But if I pick the time of your life, when you were at your lowest, or maybe lower than you've ever been, if you had been on drugs, if you had been gone penniless and been broke and were you know, one step away from living on the street, and I walked up to you at that point and said, you're completely worthless, Carrie. All right. The impact and the, the psychological and the ability of those words to go inside and infect you for the rest of your life are much higher at that low point where you could come up to me and tell me I'm completely worthless right now. And, you know, hopefully I'll follow my non-aggression principle and not give you five across the eyes. But <laughs> you're really not going to affect me at all. But in that other situation, you could. Well, when somebody's been injured and they're in that state, I, I really never thought about it. But some of these things that we've been talking about have the potential then to stick with them. And maybe they don't even remember it. It just hit them when they were in that weakest point. Absolutely, they're very vulnerable, and that that'll stick in that subconscious mind, and and that's I mean absolutely an impede of recovery that may, you know people on TV you know the guy gets shot they put a bandage on him he's a cop he you know he just killed seventeen guys and they they take him in the ambulance and the next day he's back at work and they throw him his gun and you know a lot, even even you know gunshots are considered you know minor for being a gunshot often have a much longer road of recovery than hollywood would teach us oh absolutely and it's and a lot of it has to do with the mindset of that person let's look at let's look at canine injuries let's look at some of the military working dogs uh over in afghanistan they stopped aerovacking them out of theater because their recovery times were so fast they had to turn around and send them right back I and mean, you're talking a, a malinois or a german shepherd with a through and through chest wound you know, drop both lungs, uh, rifle round, they get surgery, they're recovered back on duty fanging dudes in three weeks, man. Do you know, I'll tell you why. Because when, when, when the vet or the handler pets the dog says, you're going to be okay, boy, you know what the dog says? Cool. Right? I mean, that's, that's like, like dogs are like that. They're like, if you tell them they're all right, they're like, all right. 
I must be off. And that psychology does lead to rapid healing. I mean, it really does. It, it can't fix everything. If I get my legs blown off, you can't tell me, dude, they're going to grow back. <laughs> and, and we both believe it, so they do. Um, there's limitations, but they're all, I mean, that's, I've never heard that before. Uh, I'll be, I'll be citing that in the future. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, was, the dog was, recovery times. That, that, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. It was, it was from a SOCOM veterinarian at the last special operations medical conference I went to. SOCOM veterinarian was up there doing case study after case study of these dogs, you know, getting, getting the crap shot out of them and they're back on duty. And so they just stopped air vacuuming. I mean, it's all, you know, the same thing, like you said, translate to the human being is all in the mind and how, we can. We may not be able to help the physical aspect, but we can certainly help uh, the the mental and emotional aspect, spiritual aspect of them, and keep them keep them strong that way. Because that's definitely going to affect them uh, downstream. You know, there's a lot of downstream effects. Do you, do you remember the old show Mash? Oh yeah. There, there was an episode of that where they were out of morphine, and they were given the the, the people placebos. And when they would ask for more because they were still in pain, they would tell them, I can't give you but one more because it's so strong. It could hurt you. It could kill you. stop your heart. Stuff like that. To sell them on, that's what it was. And they had not everybody was out of pain, but a lot of people had severe reductions in pain. I found out years later after seeing that that was based on true combat feedback, that that type of thing had happened. Um, because if, if, the, if the patient believes it enough... That there there are certain things in the brain that will that will will take over, yep. um, and doctors today see that as an inconvenience. They call it the placebo effect, and it's annoying because it avoids research that will let us sell the next drug. And to me, we need to be working really hard at everything from critical emergency response to long term care at not you know, crapping on that or seeing it as in the way or saying the person's gullible, but harnessing it. Anything that leads to healing, we need to be harnessing. Uh, absolutely. And, I mean, it, it's it's something I think you said is, you know, earlier it's often overlooked, but it's, it's extremely important for the whole the whole well-being. You know, like you said, the holistic approach is, is huge, man. And, I mean, trauma medicine uh, it, it, right then, yeah, you got to keep that person alive, but you can still be reassuring and, 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 you know, and cheer them on. And that way in their mind, they go, Hey, I got this. You know, I'm going to beat this. This is not going to, this is not going to take me out. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes you know, the reality of it is their injuries may be too grave and we might not be able to, to save them. But, you know, that, that's, that's the reality of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we were told you give up when they're dead and then maybe not. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's, right. That, that, that's it. You, you keep fighting for him until you realize. And with with combat medicine, it's also, well, this guy is is is, is shutting down and this dude I can save his life and I've got to make a decision. Right. Uh, and those are some hard realities. But I'd like to thank you for this interview. It's gone into some some really uh, deep and interesting areas yeah. uh, that I had no idea that we would cover. Um, when I looked at, you know, what you were doing and all, uh, some of the places we ended up with, I think were really cool. And I'm sure the audience really enjoyed it. Um, so I appreciate you being here with us today. On that note, if folks want to get your training or, uh, or purchase one of your kits or get in touch with you about hosting or distributing for you, uh, we'll give everybody your website and contact info and what have you. Sure, man. Yeah. And, uh, oh, we even do talk about triage principles in the class too. So there's, there is a good component of the triage. So to help people sort them out, uh, you can, uh, you can check our website out at www.darkangelmedical.com. Uh, if you have any email or info questions, just shoot us an in- email at info at darkangelmedical.com. And for all you, uh, survival podcast listeners, we're also offering a special deal for y'all as well. 
If you don't mind me telling about that, Jack, you good? No, man, go ahead. Okay, yeah, all the survival podcast listeners, if you uh, the if you're looking to get some uh, looking to get some kit, t-shirts, hats, whatever, um, it, you can. Now, this is the stuff for the member support brigade, right? That we already have set up. Correct. Yes. Okay, so don't give the code out on the air. Just tell yes. them where they can find it. Yeah, you can you can you can you can, you can find that on uh, on your member support brigade info. Uh, Jack's got all that information. And so uh, it'll give you a nice little discount. Unfortunately, we, we we don't discount the training just because it's it's pretty much bottom dollar uh, when we include all the other stuff in there. But uh, if you're interested in hosting a class uh, or becoming a dealer, definitely give us an uh, email at info at darkangelmedical.com. All right, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us on the air today. And uh, thanks for the work you're doing because I, I do believe uh, you've saved lives already, maybe some you don't even know about. And I do believe if you continue to do what you're doing, uh, There'll be a lot of people in the future that will owe their lives or the lives of someone they care about to you. So thank you for being here and thank you for the work you do. It's my pleasure, Jack. I, and you know, like you said, I, I get to do a, I get to do a, a job I love, so I don't feel like I'm working at all. And I, I appreciate you for having me on and 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 just getting the word out. All right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Terry Davis, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
shadows you 